Welcome to the Life Science Report, Back Bay's monthly podcast covering news and trends in the biopharma industry. This episode, my guests are Brendan Wang and Christian Tino, engagement ba- managers here at Back Bay. These gentlemen work across our portfolio of projects, but have a deep understanding of pricing and market access, which will be the focus of today's report. Brendan, Christian, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Very happy to be here. So as, as many of you listening well know, Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab, brand name Adjahelm, was recently approved under much controversy uh, by the FDA. And we won't be uh, relitigating uh, that uh, topic today, but as Biogen also announced, uh, the price for the drug set at about $56,000 per year. I thought it'd be interesting to have Brendan and Christian on to talk about how a drug's price is set. So with that, Christian, you know, given your experience, you know, maybe you could sort of outline for our listeners how Biogen likely went about price setting. What sort of you know analyses and best practices pharma usually uh, undertakes when thinking about the price of a drug? Sure. Thanks, Pete. So I think yeah, this one is definitely an interesting question. I think. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about the price point, given the approval being so controversial. I think one of the really puzzling things about this particular situation is that, you know, given some of the, and I'll kind of go through a few of these, but sort of the traditional ways that people think about price setting, there are not really any good examples or or, or kind of conclusions that would have led to, you know, obviously, the, it's weight-based dosing, so the pricing is going to vary for Adrahelm based on the patient weight. But the median uh, price is it is kind of difficult to justify um, from any of the types of analyses that that you would typically typically see. So, um, I'd, I'd say that probably the first way that a company would do this is probably in early days. You know, when maybe when Adrahelm or whatever product is in preclinical or, or pretty early development. Would really just be to look at relevant pricing analogs. So, what are some other you know drugs that are similar or in similar spaces that have you know expected similar profile, and what price level would, would they be at? Um, that's generally what what we see for you know most of the early stage work that that we do with our clients is really kind of analog based to get a, a sense of what is a sort of ballpark of, of pricing that that you could be around. Um, again, to this specific example, if you look at you know what are there really is no analog for, you know, a highly prevalent disease that is, you know, it has an, has an antibody available. You know, if you look at what sort of Biogen's talked about in some of their investor discussions, you know, they've talked about, you know, looking at psoriasis medications, we're, we're at a 25% discount to those, we're much cheaper than, you know, specialty immunotherapy medications and oncology. Uh, I probably would would not argue, or I would probably not say that those are analogous to aducanumab here. Um, but that's probably the first way you go about this in the kind of early days. I think from there, um, you might get into some more detailed pricing research. So actually engaging directly with payers and doing, you know, whether it's through like a company like a like a BBLSA, doing interviews with with payers sure. and physicians to understand how pricing might impact uptake, what types of access you might expect at different price points in the U.S. I think in the, you, know, you certainly want to cover different types of payers in the U.S. given this, the heterogeneity of the market. Um, and I think there you can get a bit more direct information about the sort of payer willingness to pay mm-hmm. based on, you know, you might have a product profile at that point, the specific patient population that you're targeting um, and, and kind of go from there. I think 
another interesting piece here is it was really unclear what the patient population for approval right. was going to be for IG Home. And I would I would suspect that a lot of the research that was done was probably assuming that they were going to have a targeted label out with a with a sort of you know smaller population. And it would seem that they've yeah. probably gone with whatever that pricing assumption was for the broad yeah. label here too. What's in, just to cut so, you off one sec, Christian? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that in that respect, the FDA maybe you know didn't do them any favors from the public perception standpoint. In so far as as you alluded to, they you know had a fairly um, specific patient population they were trialing uh, the product in for their registrational trials, but the FDA gave them quite a uh, uh, permissive label, which, as I understand it, is just sort of treatment of Alzheimer's full stop. Uh, so, in that regard, you know, the a lot of the specific research that they did that may have underpinned that price point from a labeling perspective may not uh, have really been borne out. So what are some of the other analyses, Christian, to keep to keep going? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a good point to keep, uh, keep turning along. So I think you could definitely have your sort of direct, you know, kind of qualitative, you're going to get an understanding of, okay, based on this TPP, what are the payers think? What analog would they use in their own analysis? Sort of what, you know, what types of, right, like, like kind of we were talking about, what types of, you know, discounts would they be expecting or what sort of net price level is going to result in a certain type of access? So whether that's you know, generally in a space like, you know, where there's not any really novel therapies available, that's usually not somewhere where payers are going to aggressively manage mm-hmm. or really try to get utilization. Uh, obviously, that kind of remains to be to be seen how, how they approach this, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but that's you know, you, sort of you're getting this qualitative sense is what is what you probably want to do next. Then you could also then go a step further and start to test. Okay, we know maybe there's three different ways we see that this is potentially going to be covered based on. A certain certain pricing assumptions that also in the U.S. is going to translate into probably different copays mm-hmm. or you know, out of pocket payments for for patients. So and that's going to also affect the physician prescribing decision. So you could go into do some a bit more detailed work around really engaging physicians and getting their expectations both on the product profile and the sort of clinical value that they see, which patients they would prescribe to, and then based on certain levels of out of pocket, how would that potentially change who mm-hmm. they would be prescribing to, how much they would likely prescribe. And what you can do from that is actually sort of build up this sort of overall demand or utilization for the product, overlay that with the pricing work that you've done on the payer side, and kind of put a, a commercial or sort of revenue model together um, for the expectations for, for the for the product. That would really be all of the sort of you know primary stakeholder engagement mm-hmm. stuff you'd want to, to understand the market reaction to your price. I think the other way that you could go about it is really starting to look at, and this is kind of what it seems like Biogen is beginning to lean into a bit more, is some of the health economic value mm-hmm. and cost offsets piece. Um, and really that is you know, going to involve your pretty complicated modeling of, yeah. of longer outcomes. Obviously, it's, they're pretty uncertain at this point, given um, you know, obviously the, the only kind of surrogate outcome for the, for the drug without any sort of clinical benefit being demonstrated yet on a hard outcome. Uh, so it's going to be pretty uncertain in those models of what that level of, of cost offset and benefit might be. But that's really what it, it seems like that they've been leading into with the certain, you know, like I think that they're saying $600 billion mm-hmm. in AD costs a year. I mean, obviously, we all have an understanding that that's, sure. that's a really expensive patient population. Right. But I think I that's the other way yeah. to sort of think about this is what are you are you delaying, whether it's nursing home care or sur- prolonging survival and what's that worth? I mean, that's obviously a bit of a contentious question, certainly a little more relevant probably in Europe. Yeah. Um, but I think that's probably the third leg of the stool here. 
And from there, you kind of you know, have all the, all the data to make an informed decision about what the price is that you, you want to launch at and how you're going to justify that gotcha. um, based on what analysis you feel you know, is, is either the most robust or puts you in the, in the position that is uh, most in line with, with your strategy. Great. Great. And yeah, I mean, it, it is a case where it's very difficult to point to an analog, even on the level of similar patient population, similar outcome demonstrated, similar comorbidity or, you know, pathology averted, you know, the last one I'm not going to comment on given, you know, the um, sort of approval data, but, you know, you're talking about a 6 million patient population, at least in the, in the U.S. with really no precedent, uh, certainly for a biologic in the space. So, so it is, it is, you know, a a tough question uh, to answer. And, and, And I think sort of the last leg of the stool, Christian, that you brought up brings me to my Next question for for Brendan is the question of health economics and sort of how that um, triangulates or or underpins how the markets think about a drug price. And um, you know there was a, a little bit of news even before uh, the drug was approved from um, Icer um, talking about the appropriate price point for the asset based on what they had demonstrated, um, in the clinic. And, and it was much, much less than the, than the price they finally came to market with. But, but Brendan, maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, ICER and sort of, you know, who they are, what they do, you know, what these analyses are and, and, and how they, you know, fit within this question of, of setting a drug price. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Pete. Um, so ICER um, in, in the U.S., so we're talking about the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, and they're an independent nonprofit research institute that really seeks to you know, put out reports and evaluate um, cost effectiveness for novel drugs and medical devices and services and that, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the selection of that name, obviously, um, relevant in the health economics um, kind of arena, uh, given sort of the importance, definitely in in, mm-hmm. in Europe and in in the UK in particular for the incremental cost effectiveness ratio, which is a, a big part of how the UK evaluates um, n- new products, and we'll talk about that in in a little bit, I'm sure. Um, so you know, obviously the question is, you know, ICER they put out these reports; they're an independent body. How much weight? Do payers and other stakeholders um, give to them? Uh, It's a great question. Um, They've been around, I think, for about five years or so. Um, Mm. And and I think my perception of them, having spoken with payers, you know, five years ago (laughs) and having spoken with them more recently on on some engagements, um, is that, you know, it it is another data point for them to, to lean on, mm-hmm. but it is by no means dependent on, de- um, depended on as a, you know, the sole voice on, on, on pricing and, gotcha. and access, right. It, it's a, it's, it's just another, um, thing to point to, you know, for or against the, you know, whichever side yeah. of the argument you're kind of working, you know, toward there. 
And Brendan, maybe you can, without going into the weeds too much, talk a little bit about, you know, how they actually develop that price. Because sort of, you know, Christian talked about from the farmer perspective, what they do, but from ICER's perspective, what, what sort of goes into the black box that spits out that price? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And actually, you know, it's actually not so much of a black box because if, mm-hmm. it, when you dive into their reports, it's extreme, you know, as an independent body, I yeah. think one of their primary goals is to increase sort of literacy um, in interpreting and understanding how um, you can arrive at, um, you know, a, ra- a price range that mm-hmm. is based on some inputs. So, I would say at a very high level, what they do is they consider the different layers of costs that can go into uh, managing um, a patient. Mm -hmm. And what they'll do is they'll compare the cost of whatever the active treatment that they're assessing is, Mm -hmm. and then what is the next best alternative. So in the case of of aducanumab and and Alzheimer's disease, um, that's just going to be best supportive care. That rolls in. Uh, you know, not just direct sort of um, healthcare resource utilization costs, but they also do consider, um, you know, the impact to the caretaker. Mm-hmm. As we know, that's very yeah. substantial in this um, with this type of disease. The sort of lost productivity for the patient and for the caregiver, mm-hmm. and some of these other um, uh, r- related indirect costs. What they do is they compare the costs then of using the treatment versus the next best alternative. What is the difference in that cost? And using a a quality or a quality adjustive light year, what is the incremental gain in sort of these quality adjusted life years that you get for the incremental cost? And really the only way that number is useful is if you benchmark it against some sort of threshold um, that doesn't necessarily need to be a hard um, line in the sand, mm-hmm. but it's just a, a good rule of thumb. So in, um, in the, in the UK and Christian might know this better than me, I think the ICER threshold is a 30,000 pounds. Is that, um, yeah, is that right? it's historically been like between 30 and 50,000 pounds, but I think that there's not a, um, there's no official like set benchmark for that from yeah. nice, but that's kind of where they usually land in those, uh, yeah. in those analogies. So yeah. just to, to qualify that a bit, no pun intended, the, the quality adjusted life year threshold is, you can think about it as what is one year of good health worth? For this drug, right? And based on the price, based on what it gets you in the long term, based on what else you could be um, using, you know, and, and based on all the other side effects that you may have to manage, does it, you know, fall above or below that perceived um, threshold? And so in these reports, you do get a lot of sensitivities, right? Not only around at this quality of life year threshold you know, what would the acceptable price be, but also, you know, they go to great lengths about, you know, if you hit this level of efficacy, it's worth this. Um, so it's not necessarily just one price as I read it that they, um, that they publish. 
Yeah, they have a couple. They do definitely um, some scenario analyses too. They have, you know, with any any type of health economic modeling, there's obviously a lot of simplifying assumptions, and so mm-hmm. they they do try to acknowledge that by saying. It, very much in the way that we construct models for our clients yeah. in these types of assessments, which is, you know, there's a little bit of give and take. You acknowledge here you're being conservative, but in mm-hmm. another area, you know, maybe you're being a little bit more aggressive or conservative. And yep. that, you know, you can use sort of as your, uh, you know, rationale for defending the assumptions later down the line. Yeah. Um, so, so ICER, you know, they, they use thresholds and the US ICER uses thresholds of 50,000, 100,000, 150,000 mm-hmm. just to see kind of, um, you know, the, uh, those being sort of um, gradual uh, uh, thresholds that they assess um, new products mm-hmm. against. Um, I think at all of those, um, the sort of price ranges that they ended up recommending is that. You know, a fair price given the uh, assumed clinical data from the trial mm-hmm. that that would pan out in the real world would be between 2500 and $8,300 um, per year, which obviously is a fraction yeah. of um, where they ended up pricing it at. Now, if you focus, and, and this is where that sort of upside scenario, right. or if we make a simplifying assumption, if you focus just on the study that had positive outcomes and um, you assume that those positive outcomes are the only ones that translate to the real world, then you could look at an annual price range of 11 to 23,000 per year. So quite a bit higher, but still lower than um, where they ended up netting out. Still, yeah, still a a little bit of a a disconnect. And and I I guess for full transparency, we should say that, that, you know, frequently these ICER type analyses are always coming in a bit less than what, uh, you know, a drug sponsor is, is launching with. So this isn't something that is necessarily, uh, unique to Biogen, um, and, um, uh, Adrahelm specifically. Um, so I, I guess in light of that, Christian, can you talk about how the payers who are ultimately, you know, going to be making decisions around, utilization and, and access to this drug, you know, how they're going to be looking at it, what types of analyses they're going to be doing, and maybe, you know, to the extent you can speak to uh, in the U.S., the, the CMS and their role, sort of given the um, uh, aged population that's that's at play here. Sure. I think that's, this, is an, uh, this is an interesting one, too, because I think we, I kind of mentioned earlier that anytime you have a sort of new drug coming into a high-end med need, indication where, I mean, there's obviously a lot of patient advocacy support behind the approval. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of puts, and, and I think an important thing to remember here is that, you know, commercial payers, at least in the U.S., are a competitive, they're running a competitive business against other yep. commercial insurers that all have an offering, right? Yep. And I think, you know, they, in a situation like this, you'll you'll hear this a number of times if talking to payers is that no one wants to be the one payer that doesn't cover sure. the, the, the new drug and the high end need indication for, you know, a certain patient population. Um, so I think that sort of, it's almost like a prisoner's dilemma type situation here <laughs> yeah. where no, no one wants to be the first domino. I think this is in this particular case, this is probably as, as close as you could get to having, you know, a commercial payer 
putting in some sort of restrictions or utilization yeah. management on a, a new medication. And we'll see how that, how that plays out as, you know, this, this kind of goes on. I think in terms of the analysis that the payer will do themselves, I think they're generally, you know, they will get a submission from the manufacturer of the sort of data package mm-hmm. for approval. Generally, that's really only, you know, publicly available information. Um, so if, you, if you're thinking about it from the manufacturer's perspective, they ne- don't necessarily want to be introducing any non-publicly sure. available information to the payer because that, that potentially there's really no upside for them in doing yeah. that, especially in a situation like this where they're pretty confident that they're going to get coverage mm-hmm. um, for for the, the therapy. So really, it's it's you know pretty detailed clinical study reports, all of the, the detailed information from this. I'm sure that they'll get the subgroup analyses, all of that. Right. So the pair will have their chance to sort of go through and, and that go through that data and make any sort of inferences or, or you know, draw any conclusions mm-hmm. they can about who they think that this should be used in, if anyone. But at the end of the day, it's almost in this case, a little bit less about that. So in a you know traditional setting, let's say you were to be having a new drug that had a clear benefit into a, a, an indication with four other therapies. Right. Then it really becomes a question of, OK, based on the data we have and what we know. Where do we think that this fits? Are are there any ways that we can that we feel like we need to direct utilization based on what this manufacturer is expecting to charge? And that's how a payer would make a determination around. Okay, well, we have a contract in place with this company, or we don't have contracts with these, mm-hmm. so we have we can you know we'll put a step therapy in place, we'll put in a PA for this, whatever. That, that's how they will make that determination. Um, I think in this case, no matter what comes out of that analysis, this is almost like a broader kind of strategic question yes. for the payer. Yeah. Like, do they want to yeah. be the insurance company that doesn't approve this? I think, you know, from uh, my, my my gut sense is that th- this is pretty close to a boiling point. I think you've had a sort of priming of this from payers for the past few years with a number of high, you know, high, you have high price oncology launch after high price oncology launch, another area where there's really not any they don't have any willingness or ability to, to direct usage there. I think yeah. you're starting to see that a bit more for, you know, some of the more commoditized areas. Um, but I think this is potentially a pivotal moment for commercial insurers in the U.S. to, to you know, put a stake in the ground on, on that they don't think that this is worth it. But I, again, would be surprised to see that yeah. just given how this has played out in the past. I think on the CMS side, you know, that's, again, another area where, and I think really importantly, where most of the utilization mm-hmm. is expected to come from, just given the aging of the sort of population age. Um, you know, I think in, in that case, again, CMS doesn't have a lot of flexibility on, you know, FDA approved medicines, right? That's, that's, they sort of have to cover that, especially within, within the Part B construct. Yeah. Um, I think what there's there's been some sort of initial thought around whether there's going to be a national coverage determination for uh, for Medicare Part B with Adjihelm. Mm-hmm. I think the, this is sort of the the kind of NCD you know the NCD program is really meant to in instances where there are, I think you know they say like significant questions yeah. around the sort of efficacy of the product or its potential data package or whatever that Medicare can can do a sort of customized review of whether they actually feel it's worth it to reimburse and there've been a, they're pretty rare I, I can only find like a handful of examples of that in the past few years but I think one of the famous ones was Provenge okay. which is one of the one of the highest priced oncology medicines that had a very um, controversial data package yeah. when that came out, and that was you know orders of not well not orders, but about an order of magnitude I think higher in price than yeah. than folks thought it was going to be. Um, so that's one way that that CMS could could potentially uh, you know put some 
some kind of cost management in place. I think I would be surprised if the outcome of that was sort of, you know, full on non-coverage. Sure. I would sure. expect that it would probably be something around restricting use to the specific population when there was a signal. Right. Um, but again, there's a ton of uncertainty on the on the payer front here that I think is is often uh, is is often kind of froth, but in this case is is real. Yeah. I think if you're um, if you're Biogen, interesting because you know during our work we always hear you know payers um, talking about drug pricing and in rare diseases. You're exactly right, Christian. They're the you know not wanting. Uh, to be the first ones to deny access and or given the number of patients that have a rare disease on their plan, it's not worth spending a lot of time managing it. But this is a, um, not to use the overused term unprecedented, (laughs) maybe outside of the realm of COVID, this really is a very interesting uh, uh, situation. It'll be interesting to see how uh, how the, the, the payers and CMS navigate uh, the waters. So, well, I, I'm looking at the time and we were going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the XUS, uh, um, front and, and how that, uh, evolves. But I think, uh, we will save that for another scintillating podcast, uh, here on the life science report from back Bay. So I would like to end by thanking uh, my colleagues, Christian Tienel and Brendan Wang, uh, for joining me and look forward to having you back on a upcoming episode. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to the Back Bay Life Science Report, brought to you by the Back Bay Life Science Advisor Strategy and Investment Banking Teams. To learn more, please visit us at bblsa.com and connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. For show notes or links to items mentioned in the show, visit the podcast page on our website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening source.